First, Dr. Kevin Majerad, thank you so much for joining us. We often interview busy people at Real Vision, but we've never had anyone come out of a lab working on a coronavirus vaccine. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. So let's jump right in. What's the current state of COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes it? Well, as you're probably aware, um, this is still very early on. Despite all that's happened over the past six months, we didn't know that this virus existed uh, until uh, January 10th when the sequences were published. Uh, it was probably circulating in the population for uh, several months before that, um, but we are learning a lot in a very short period of time. We have a general understanding of the family of viruses to which SARS-CoV-2 belongs, but we only have known about coronaviruses in humans since the 1960s, as opposed to other viruses like influenza, yellow fever, and others that we've known for much longer than that. So where we are right now is still very much trying to understand why this virus transmits so much more easily than other viruses, uh, and why it is potentially so deadly, and actually even how deadly it is. Uh, every day we're learning something new about this virus. Let's talk a little bit about the general context of what coronaviruses are. You mentioned they've only been with us, uh, that we've only been aware of them at least since the 1960s. And I know you've spent many years of your uh, professional career and research career looking at these types of viruses. What are they and what has created the potential for such a deadly pandemic? So coronaviruses are a, as I said, a family of viruses. Um, we've known them about them for about 50 50, 60 years uh, in humans, but we actually uh, first identified coronaviruses uh, earlier than that in the 1930s, because they don't only cause infections in humans, but um, a whole range of animals as well. Mice, chicken, cats. Uh, but in humans, they cause what we, of what we're aware, only respiratory viruses, uh, respiratory infections. Uh, they range from a common cold to the severe pneumonia that we've seen with SARS and then MERS in the last decade and then most recently with SARS-CoV-2. It is a large virus uh, when you compare it to other viruses like influenza. Uh, in just looking at the virus itself, it's much larger than other viruses. It's, um, its genome, uh, the amount of genetic material it has, its coding for its life cycle is much larger than other viruses, about twice the size of influenza. And until 2003, when SARS appeared, SARS-1 appeared, uh, we were only aware of two coronaviruses in human populations, and they really just caused a common cold. Since 2003, we've identified or become aware of about five new coronaviruses, uh, three of them being very pathogenic, meaning causing deadly disease, and two others causing kind of a mild cold as well. So we've seen kind of a, a range of, of um, severity with these viruses uh, from common cold all the way to severe pneumonia and death. 
and you've been very involved in studying these past coronavirus outbreaks. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've done uh, in terms of research and work in the field? I've been working on coronaviruses for about eight years now. I started at the National Institutes of Health at the Vaccine Research Center uh, when Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus uh, became known to the world. Uh, that is a virus that appears to be more deadly than any of the other coronaviruses. Fortunately, it doesn't transmit easily between humans. That coronavirus seems to transmit from camels to human populations um, multiple times over. And so it's been percolating over the past eight years. Uh, but relative to other coronaviruses, it's infected far fewer individuals, about 2,500 individuals, but it has about a 35 to 40% mortality rate. The work that I did on, on MERS uh, was on the area of, of developing vaccines uh, for MERS and trying to understand the immunology of this virus. I then went to the World Health Organization in 2015 where I was working on the Ebola response, but as part of my duties there was to try and develop a, a roadmap for vaccines for MERS as a model for vaccines for coronaviruses in general. And uh, actually after the Ebola outbreak, the World Health Organization developed a, a list of um, the most important viruses or pathogens that we need to be aware of, that we need to be uh, looking towards that may cause a pandemic. And MERS was listed as one of those, not because we thought MERS necessarily was going to cause a pandemic, but that we could use that as a model to understand coronaviruses in general. We had a sense that coronaviruses were going to be a problem. I have a slide that I've been presenting for the past five years, and a lot of my presentations that shows a picture of SARS-1 in 2002, MERS in 2012, and then I have a question mark, and it's coronavirus X in, in the next five to 10 years. I'm not the only one who's been um, kind of sounding the alarm on that. Um, there have been a lot of us, uh, and we're not oracles. We just are going based on what the patterns we saw over the past couple of decades, that the emergence of coronaviruses in human populations has been accelerating. You know, this experience has made you literally uh, the exact right person to, for us to talk to and the right person to be leading the research that you're currently leading now. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? We were working on uh, MERS uh, before this started. And so we had the only uh, actual, we had the only coronavirus research and development program within the Department of Defense. And it was primarily focused towards MERS, but we were looking towards developing broad platforms so uh, for vaccines, trying to take an approach where we could address all coronaviruses, known and potentially unknown, when this outbreak occurred. And so, on January 10th, when, those, when we had those sequences published of SARS-CoV-2, myself and uh, the head of my structural biology section, Dr. Gordon Joyce, had a conversation late at night. And we, we said, you know, we have the expertise. We've been working on coronaviruses. Uh, 
um, and we have the mission uh, to address this new coronavirus. We don't know how it's going to unfold. None of us did. Uh, but we knew that we, um, as you said, we, we, had, we were sort of uh, building up to this moment. We had the training uh, to address this particular problem. And so we decided to start developing a vaccine right then. And the vaccine that we, um, we developed was based on some work that we had done for influenza, another respiratory virus. And I can get into a little bit more about that, but um, the, the approach that we're taking is addressing this particular uh, SARS-CoV-2, but also using that as a way to pivot towards addressing all coronaviruses, as we were doing and we were trying to start doing before, using MERS as a model, but now using SARS-CoV-2 as a point to launch off to develop vaccines for other coronaviruses. Because, as I said, this is an accelerating problem. This is not slowing down. So there's no expectation that this virus is going to go away anytime soon, but also why do we think with five new coronaviruses in the past two decades, there won't be other ones that are coming down, uh, emerging from animal populations into human populations? And so we need to be ready for that next wave as well. Not the next wave of this pandemic, but the next pandemic of a coronavirus. You know, that's an extraordinary story and also an extraordinary explanation for the risk that we face going forward. Could you talk a little bit about what concerns you so much about other coronaviruses? And then we can loop back in uh, to talk about the work that you're doing on this one. After SARS-1, uh, the world uh, kind of was galvanized to try to understand what viruses are circulating out there in the animal populations that could potentially spill over into human populations. And once we started doing that work, and I'm talking as a global scientific community, we started finding that there were a lot of coronaviruses out there, particularly circulating in bat populations. Usually, what we expect is that, you know, bats harbor a lot of different types of viruses that have posed problems for, uh, for humans. Um, Ebola, uh, something called Nipah virus, um, and then, of course, coronaviruses as well. And we were very concerned that one of these bat coronaviruses were going, was going to jump into a human population, just like it did with SARS-1, just like it did with MERS, although it came from bats to camels to humans you know, for, for MERS. And we actually expected another bat coronavirus to emerge. We just saw that circulating um, quite a bit um, in, in the same part of, of China that SARS-CoV-2 emerged. But we were surprised to see that the virus that did emerge was different than the one that we expected. Um, and not only that, but was much more transmissible than any of these other highly pathogenic coronaviruses. Usually, we'll see, whether it be with coronaviruses or something like um, uh, pandemic flu uh, strains, like bird flu strains, you see them being very deadly, but that they don't transmit very easily. Unfortunately, this virus was much more transmissible than any of us expected. 
and it is still very deadly. Even if we assume that we're missing a lot of the cases, you know, that the number of cases overall is much higher than we're detecting, if we're pretty conservative and say, okay, it's, you know, five to ten times more number of cases, that still means that the, uh, the mortality from this particular uh, coronavirus is five to ten times more than seasonal influenza. And that's huge. When you think of the world's population, if we're talking about 0.5%, uh, we're talking about tens of millions of people who still could die from this disease. Um, so uh, our, our, you know, our greatest fears were realized uh, with this particular virus, something that was more transmissible than any of the other um, uh, coronaviruses and, and much more so than influenza but just as deadly or even more deadly than a lot of the flu strains we saw in the past. Yeah, it really is such an incredible story. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about the science that you're doing? I know it's a bit challenging for a non-technical audience, but what is the basic framework for the work that you're doing right now? So if you look at the whole landscape of vaccines out there, and I think the World Health Organization now is tracking over 250 vaccine candidates that people have proposed. Now, the vast majority of those are not vaccines that are ever going to see uh, the light of day. But even those that are really being um, considered for advancement and acceleration, particularly in the context of something called Operation Warp Speed, which I'm part of, and is a whole-of-government response within the U.S. to accelerate and advance the development of vaccines, even within those, you have dozens of vaccine candidates. But they all boil down to the same concept. That you are trying, with a vaccine, you're trying to train the immune system on how to fight off an infection without actually seeing the infection. So you're giving sort of a facsimile of the virus in some way, or the portion of the virus that uh, induces an immune response. That part of the virus that induces the strongest immune response is called the spike protein. So if you look at the coronavirus on cross-section in a microscope, uh, it looks like a halo with all these spikes around it. That's how it gets its name. It's a corona, a crown. And those things jutting off of it, the spike, uh, is the protein that the virus uses to attach and latch on to your lung cells. And then once it latches on to your lung cells, it changes its shape to become like a spear. And a spear that just um, stabs into your lung cell and allows the virus then to fuse with your lung cell and get all of its genetic material into your cells and then take over your cells and use your cells machinery to then replicate and then start causing either a helpful immune response or a harmful immune response, which is what we see with people who get very sick and end up on ventilators and potentially die in hospitals. Um, So that spike protein, if you develop an immune response to that part, and particularly one part of immune response that is really important called antibodies, 
if you develop antibodies against that spike protein, it prevents it from attaching to your lung cells and getting into your cells and infecting you and causing disease. So if you train the immune system with that spike protein, uh, you, that, that, that's potentially a good vaccine. So all these different vaccines out there are using that as the training material. How they deliver that vaccine differs across the different companies. So you hear about different companies like Moderna and Novavax and Johnson and & Johnson and BioNTech and Pfizer and AstraZeneca. They're all using the spike protein as the main part of the vaccine but they have a different vehicle for that spike. And I, I've made this analogy before that you have a, um, for a vehicle, a chassis, uh, where it has you know, the, the axles and the wheels and everything, but what you put on top of that chassis, um, that's all the same. That's a spike protein, but the vehicle base itself is going to be different across the vaccines. Our approach, again, uses the spike protein. It's genetically modified, genetically engineered. But we are taking something called a ferritin nanoparticle to present that spike protein to the immune system. Okay, what is ferritin? Ferritin is a protein, a molecule in humans, and actually in all animals, and even in bacteria, that carries iron. Iron is very important, uh, an important element for uh, survival for, uh, for life. It's especially important for our red blood cells and carrying oxygen. So ferritin has a unique property in that it can self-assemble into a nice symmetrical ball sphere. So one ferritin will be expressed in the cell and then on its own, it forms into this uh, sphere that has 24 different faces. And the way I try to visualize it for people is, if you think of a soccer ball, a soccer ball is not a smooth sphere. It has different faces, right? It's like, it's actually 32 different faces. I, didn't, I played soccer for, for 10, 12 years. I, I never really knew how many faces it had until I tried to think about an analogy for our, our vaccine. Our vaccine is like a soccer ball, but with 24 faces. And you can attach that spike protein onto the face of that soccer ball. So you get that spike protein presented 24 times around. That's important because the immune system is boosted a lot more when you present whatever it is you want to present, the spike protein, multiple times in a very tiny space. We're also delivering that with something called an adjuvant. And I can, I can go into that as well, but an adjuvant basically is, an immune, is a molecule that's an immune booster that you give with your vaccine. And we have a, our own patented adjuvant along with our ferritin nanoparticle vaccine uh, that we think is going to boost the immune system, uh, not only with high magnitude, but the right type of immune response to neutralize or to protect against this particular virus. 
Doctor, I understand the work that you're doing. This is a novel mechanism that others are not working on. Is that correct? That's correct. Our nanoparticle approach is unique in the particular type of nanoparticle. There's one other nanoparticle vaccine out there, which is Novavax. Theirs is a vaccine that just uses the spike protein. It's not attached to any other protein um, to make it kind of symmetric. And the, because of that, they can't predict how many of those spike proteins and in what order and shape they're going to be presented. So ours is the only one where we can predict exactly how many spike proteins, what shape, and how they're going to be presented to the immune system. Also, that immune-boosting molecule called an adjuvant that we have is uh, unique to our particular vaccine as well. There are other adjuvants out there. Um, in licensed vaccines, the most common one is aluminum, aluminum salts that you give with vaccines, like for the tetanus shot or for hepatitis A or hepatitis B vaccines. But our particular adjuvant is something that we patented within the Army um, that is unique. So the combination, each component of the vaccine, but the combination of those two components is also unique. You know, as you describe it, doctor, it sounds like a three-dimensional topological puzzle that you guys are trying to fit together and trying to envision what this would look like. What are some of the technologies that you're using to advance that cause? Well, uh, I mentioned Dr. Joyce, my co-inventor of the vaccine. His lab uh, within my department really focuses on trying to understand the structure, the map of these viruses at the atomic level. So we use technologies like X-ray crystallography and cryogenic electron microscopy to really visualize every single atom of the most important parts of the virus. So we get an actual map or a GPS, as, as Dr. Joyce likes to say, of that particular part of the virus. That allows us to modify parts of the virus that we think are going to induce the strongest immune response. We also have other technologies that pull out antibodies from people who have been infected. So people who have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 or even other coronaviruses we pull out the antibodies that are the strongest that bind to and what we call neutralize that part of the virus, the spike protein. We use those antibodies again with the map that we've developed from our structural biology techniques to develop a better vaccine. And this is an iterative cycle we go round and round and round. That's the other thing that I, I think I want um, for your audience to understand is that typically it takes a couple of years at least to do the discovery work and the design work of a vaccine. What we've been doing is compressing that timeline into just a few months. The best way to have a vaccine ready for a new virus is to have done that work years before in anticipation. So the National Institutes of Health and the Vaccine Research Center 
where I was previously working on coronaviruses, has had that opportunity to work towards um, the understanding of the spike protein at that very detailed level. We started a little bit later than them, but we were able to take that work that we were doing with MERS and pivot it over to SARS-CoV-2 in those first few weeks and able to publish the, the, some of the earliest and most detailed images of the structure of part of that spike protein that then allowed us to develop a better vaccine. Yeah, and so in many ways, we're very lucky to have had a head start with MERS and SARS. We are, but no matter how fast we go, it's not fast enough. Um, and I think the every minute of every passing day with every death, we're reminded that we're not going fast enough. The only way to go truly fast enough is to have the vaccine before the virus emerges. Obviously, we can't do that right now. Um, you know, we, um, we were caught off guard by this virus. But uh, we have the technology and the tools to develop vaccines, to develop treatments, to develop diagnostics or tests for the next outbreak. I, I, I give an example. With Zika, so we had our own Zika vaccine program, and we were one of the first ones out of the gate with a couple of other um, uh, organizations as well. We had a Zika vaccine from conception to clinical trial in a matter of months, and we all patted ourselves on the back on how fast we went, which was unprecedented at the time. And it was just a few years ago. When we looked back at the epidemic curve of Zika, in South America, everybody who started their vaccine program, we started very quickly. We started in February of 2016, the same day that the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency of international concern. We thought we were starting quickly. Everybody thought they were starting quickly and moving really quickly. When we look back at that curve, we saw that we actually started after the peak of the epidemic. Um, so no matter how fast we go, the virus is going to outpace us unless, and, and that's outpace us if we're in a response mode, unless we are in a prevention mode and have the vaccines in place before that virus emerges, we're always going to lose that race. You know, when we talk about the time frames involved, this is obviously very complex science. Based on where you are today, what's your expectation or your outlook for what the pace of this might be, this particular vaccine that you're working on, in terms of getting it out to an active population here in the U.S. and elsewhere? So we have, there are different phases of vaccine development. I talked about the design and discovery. And then you you pick a whole panel of different versions of your vaccine and you test those in animals. You test them in mice, monkeys, sometimes other animals like guinea pigs or ferrets, hamsters. We're past all of that now. We're actually manufacturing our vaccine 
for a clinical trial. We'll start that first phase of clinical trials um, later uh, in the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. We'll see how it looks in terms of safety and the immune response that it induces. If it looks good from that first trial, then it will shift towards a much larger trial to look at if, it's wor if it works, look at its effectiveness in the general population. We hope to start that in the winter of this year. So that is a little bit behind, but still within the general timeline, a lot of these other vaccines that are out there in the landscape. Um, and why, people always ask, you know, why does it take so long to develop vaccines? And what are you doing now to make it shorter? Well, the longest part is in checking and rechecking to make sure that the vaccine is safe. I've said this before, I'm a physician, and the first principle for physicians is to do no harm. So we don't want the intervention, the vaccine, the treatment to be worse than the disease. So we are focused on making sure all the checks are made for safety first. And then we have to look at if it's effective. The way we look at how, the way we address that, evaluate effectiveness is looking at giving the vaccine to people and comparing it with people who don't have the vaccine and seeing if people who got the vaccine are more protected. That depends on the epidemiology of the disease. You have to have enough cases to be able to detect the difference between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. So that's really the, the second part that, that is the rate limiter in how fast we can go in evaluating and eventually getting approved and deploying the vaccine for the general population. You know, that anticipated my next question. When you say deploying for the general population, assuming that it does meet these safety metrics, assuming that it, the vaccine that you're working on now is uh, effective against the virus, how long does something like this take to deploy after clinical trials uh, have been completed to a broad general population? It oftentimes can be a couple of years in the traditional timeline because what manufacturers, the pharmaceutical industry does is when you go in the traditional timeline, they look at the safety first, then the effectiveness, then they submit all that data and results from those studies to the FDA or in Europe, the equivalent is the European Medicines Agency. And then they wait for approval. Once they get approval, they say, okay, now I'm going to start manufacturing the vaccine at millions or hundreds of millions of doses. That takes a while to scale up. So what we're doing in terms of compressing the timelines, as I said, is not the safety part. It's in the manufacturing part. So what Operation Warp Speed is doing is working with companies to scale up millions and hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine even before we know that the vaccine is effective. So that's where, that's where the risk is. So that once the vaccine gets approved, if it gets approved, then we'll have those millions and hundreds of million doses. We don't have to wait a couple of years to scale up and manufacture those doses. The risk is that 
you're making vaccine without knowing if it's going to work. So if it doesn't work in some of these studies, you have, you have to throw all that vaccine in the trash. Companies are not typically willing to assume that risk. However, with the support of the government in this race for a vaccine, the government can assume that financial risk for the, for the companies to make it worthwhile for them to start scale up manufacturing even before the vaccine is approved. So as I understand it, there are currently no vaccines for any coronaviruses. Is that correct? There are no vaccines that are licensed. That's correct. There uh, were three vaccines for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, coronavirus, that were tested in humans. I was the principal investigator of the first vaccine for MERS in collaboration with a company called Novio. And then there are two others uh, that were tested in humans. There were two also that were tested for SARS-1. But they were never advanced. The reason why they were never advanced is because SARS-1 just faded and disappeared after a year. And MERS just causes these small sporadic outbreaks. As I said, over the course of eight years, only 2,500 people have been confirmed to be infected. So there wasn't much incentive for industry to advance these vaccines. However, after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa of 2014 to 2016, the World Health Organization created a spin-off called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, CEPI, which became a organization funded by uh, philanthropic organizations and governments to accelerate the development of vaccines for diseases that had pandemic potential. And the first three uh, that they identified were MERS, Lassa virus, and Nipah virus. And the idea was that industry doesn't have the financial incentive to make these vaccines for viruses that may or may not cause a pandemic, but we have to be prepared for them. And this was only just starting. That's the thing is that when I talk about the being prepared and having the vaccines and the treatments in place beforehand, we had started doing that because the Ebola outbreak of 2016 was a watershed moment, a wake-up call for us. But we hadn't really gotten into a, a, a phase where we were ready for something like this just yet. We had just started doing the work to develop vaccines. So I mentioned the MERS vaccines that I was involved in and others. The next phase was to start looking at larger trials of those, those vaccines. Um, and we were just in the process of starting those larger trials of the MERS vaccines when SARS-CoV-2 hit. So we have started a lot of work on vaccine development for coronaviruses, really mostly in the past five years in earnest, but none have come to licensure. There have been a lot of talk about strains and mutations of this virus. What have you learned in your work 
uh, that suggests that either is or is not happening, especially with regard to the fear of it becoming more transmissible or more deadly. That's always a concern with a new virus the longer it is circulating in the population. Viruses have evolved to evolve more quickly than us. Um, they replicate more quickly. Their replication machinery is a little bit faulty, so they make mistakes. Those mistakes are actually advantageous to them in making them able to adapt and evolve in different environments. Coronaviruses are a type of virus called RNA viruses. Their genetic material is RNA instead of DNA. Those viruses tend to mutate more readily but when it comes to coronaviruses within the broader, broader category of uh, RNA viruses, their replication machinery actually has a little bit higher fidelity than, say, something like influenza. So we don't see the accumulation of mutations at such a rapid rate. However, we still do see mutations. And we also always have to be vigilant for those mutations that may make the viruses adapted to be more transmissible or more deadly. From the beginning, I mentioned that I had a conversation with my uh, co-inventor on the vaccine, Dr. Joyce, about developing the vaccine based on the sequence that was first published. But I also reached out to another scientist in my group, Dr. Morgan Roland, um, and Dr. Roland is a phylogeneticist, and she looks at, what does that mean? That She looks at um, the evolution of viruses over time. And she had done a lot of work on HIV, which mutates a lot. And I asked her and her team from day one to start tracking the sequences of viruses that were being published for SARS-CoV-2. Now we're up to about 50,000 sequences. That's also unprecedented in terms of the volume and the rate at which these sequences of the viruses are being published. And I asked her specifically to look at the, the virus sequence as it pertains to our vaccine. So is the virus mutating in such a way that the vaccine that we developed and everybody in the world developed based on those original sequences is the virus mutating in such a way that the vaccine is not going to be effective for the viruses that are currently circulating? That does not seem to be the case. What we do see, though, is a mutation in the spike protein, that protein that latches on to your lung cells and allows it, the virus to enter into your lung cells. There's a mutation in that spike protein that may confer um, more stability to that spike protein. Now, there is some data, early data, in a dish, not in animals, not in humans, that show the virus with that mutation may be able to infect more easily, infect cells. The leap then is that if it infects cells more easily in the dish, it may be able to infect your lung cells out there in the human population, which means that it's more transmissible. 
It's not clear yet if that's the case, and the studies are being done in animals to see if that really bears out. There is no other evidence, though, to suggest that the virus has mutated to become more deadly. Um, so right now, the vaccines and the therapies that are being developed, based on those original sequences, look like they're going to still cover the currently circulating viruses out there. Because other than that mutation that I mentioned, there's not really an accumulation of mutations that seem to affect the biology of the virus in any significant way. In terms of the way this virus is transmitted, obviously there are a few people in the world who have looked at this as closely as you have. What have you learned potentially that we need to take away as individual citizens for how we can protect ourselves and our families from this virus, whether it's uh, hand washing techniques, uh, different types of masks, surgical masks versus cloth masks, for example. We've heard a lot about this. What are your thoughts on those issues? Again, with a new virus only seven months old, in terms of our awareness of this virus, we're learning quite a bit still every day. It's still very early. But what some of the data are showing recently is that this virus may transmit in different ways. So <clears throat> it's a respiratory virus, so we know that it transmits person to person through the air, but we distinguish in infectious diseases different types of transmission through the air. There's something called transmission by droplets, and then there's airborne transmission. So droplets are, are when we think of that, it's actual large droplets, you know, when you sneeze, when you cough, when you blow your nose, and you have to be pretty close to a person um, for that to transmit over. Airborne transmission is when it's on smaller, smaller particulates in the air and can kind of still live in a suspended cloud for a period of time. So even when the person, you know, if you, you cough and you go out of the room, that cloud is still there and the person, next person comes in, they can then potentially get infected. The most efficient way of transmission for, you know, an efficient exa example of efficient transmission by the airborne route, that cloud in the air is measles. Um, for the droplet, we tend to think of something like influenza. So we had a, a sense that the primary mode of transmission is by that droplets. That's why we talk about the six feet distance that people need to, because any further than that, maybe even nine feet, depending on if you're coughing or sneezing, any further than that, then the droplets don't really travel that far. If it's airborne transmission though, it doesn't matter how far you are because you can leave a room and your infectious material is still hanging out inside that room. There's a lot of controversy as to what fraction of transmission is by that airborne route or that droplet route. And this is the way science is. We have to do the studies. We do them in controlled settings. We do them in laboratories. And we make certain conclusions. Generalizing those conclusions to the real world is 
you know, a, a tricky process. So then we have to do the studies in the general populations where we can't control the factors, the variables as much. So we're still trying to figure out the fraction of droplet transmission, airborne transmission, something else we call fomite transmission, which is transmission by objects. So, you know, if I sneeze and wipe my face, then put my hand on a doorknob, and then someone comes later, touches that doorknob, and then touches their face, is that a primary mode of transmission as well? All of these are being studied. Right now, though, the data that is out there shows that droplet transmission is probably one of the major modes of transmission, and that masks on a population level do interrupt the transmission dynamics of this virus. If you get to a high proportion of individuals within a population wearing masks. But the science is constantly evolving in this. And, you know, we, if we come back and talk again in a few weeks, we may have new data that revises what we, our, our, our understanding. Uh, we can just only go based on what we know from other coronaviruses, other similar viruses, what we are learning from the data that is coming out about this particular viruses. And then there's conjecture. And I try to stay as close as possible to the first two and avoid the guesswork and conjecture. We, we've heard a lot about the r naught number, the number of people that are transmitted uh, to from one individual uh, and about flattening the curve. Based on your understanding, the idea that, you know, I live here in New York City and ride the subway every day or did ride the subway every day before this outbreak, the idea that w diligent mask use, constant hand washing, uh, general precautions that we take can flatten the curve or reduce that, is that something that you believe uh, could 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 be um, a, a mechanism for people to start to get back to work? Or is it just too soon to say? When we think of... Um public health interventions, we never really think of just one intervention. We think of a package uh, uh, of interventions, a combination of different modalities. So it's going to take social, behavioral modifications that we've all already started doing um, and that to some extent have become second nature for us. It's going to be a vaccine of some level of effectiveness. Um, and it's going to be improved testing, coverage, and then contact tracing and isolation of pockets of outbreaks so that we don't have to take that blunt hammer and just lock down entire cities or states. It's going to take a combination of all those interventions to be able to get our society back to normal. I'm curious, doctor, at a personal level, when you go grocery shopping, do you wipe down your carton of milk when you bring it home? Do you go out and dine in a cafe outside? Um, I'm curious about how, I mean, studying this all day long, it must make you incredibly sensitized to these risks. How do you conduct your personal life and what can we take away from that? I, um, you know, I, it, you, you mentioned sort of um, the word belief. Uh, when it comes to these sorts of things, it's not a matter of belief for me. It's a matter of what are the data. 
and what are the levels of ignorance that we have. So I go based on the data that is available. And the recommendations that come out of the CDC and the WHO and other public health organizations are really truly rooted in the data. So when I go out to um, uh, out in the public, I wear a mask, I wash my hands frequently, although I, I'm an infectious disease doctor, so I've been preaching washing hands uh, for a long period of time. I get vaccinated against the diseases that we have vaccines for, particularly influenza. That's going to be very important this coming year that people get vaccinated against influenza because it's going to have an impact on, um, on uh, trying to separate out what's COVID, what's influenza, also, you know, overwhelming the healthcare system. So I try to practice what I preach and what my colleagues in the public health community preach in the um, in my daily life. So wiping down the milk, yes or no? <laughs> I do not wipe down the milk. Um, and um, the reason is because uh, fomite transmission, as I said, you know, from uh, that has not been shown to be a primary mode of transmission. Um, but I wash my hands. I mean, I'm constantly washing my hands, but I don't wipe down everything that I get from the outside world that comes into my home. A couple of questions just before we close. When when you read, um, you know, popular newspapers, watch cable news, what are some of the major misconceptions uh, that you'd like to clear up that people may believe that they shouldn't believe about this virus and this disease? Um, for the most part, I think, you know, and, and when I've been on, on um, news shows and had uh, interactions like the one I'm having with you now, they're very thoughtful. Uh, they're very much based in data. Um, but, um, you know, it, there's a lot of voices out there that are not based in science, that are not rooted in the data. And um, I think, you know, the, the media has a responsibility um, to uh, go that extra step to make sure they are going directly to the source of the information where it was generated. So things can get perpetuated in an echo chamber. Um, and the original study that, that generated the data sometimes is completely ignored. And so I encourage my colleagues, and for the most part, the, uh, my colleagues in the media have been wonderful in providing a platform for those of us who are doing the science and those of us who are um, trying to generate and disseminate the data to the public that will help them um, protect themselves. For the most part, the, uh, the news outlets have been very good about that, but I really still do encourage each time that I speak with, with my colleagues, um, in the media and outside in the lay community to as much as possible go to the source. And it, sometimes it's difficult because it's in, you know, the scientific lingo. Um, but there are a lot of sources out there um, that uh, translate that uh, information. And if you go to the people who are actually doing those studies, um, they're all happy, like myself, to spend as much time as possible in uh, kind of 
unpacking and, and digesting uh, that information in a way that, that the general public can understand. And finally, as you look forward, what data are you most eagerly awaiting? What are some of the things that we may be seeing uh, over the next you know, one, three, six months that you're going to be looking at much more closely to understand what the potential forward trajectory of this virus and this disease are going to be? Well, obviously, everybody wants to know uh, some of these vaccines that are pretty far advanced in clinical trials, um, in particularly the large-scale phase three efficacy trials. Everybody wants to know what the results of those are going to be. I'm just as interested in the data that is going to come out, and we're doing some of those studies as well, on looking at what we call correlates of protection. So everybody's talking about getting an antibody test. And, oh, if you have an antibody to SARS-CoV-2, you're good, you're protected, and go do whatever you want. We don't know that. Um, we have some indication, as I said, from other coronaviruses, but coronaviruses are you know, pretty immature in terms of our scientific understanding of them. Um, and we don't know for sure that antibodies are going to be uh, sufficient for immunity to protect you from subsequent infection. We don't know what type of antibody. There are many different types of antibodies. What type of antibody is going to be protective if it is an antibody? And if you have that antibody and it's the right type, and we've shown that that particular type of antibody provides protection in animal studies and human studies, how long are you protected? Are you protected for a few months, a few years, for life? We don't know those answers. That's what I really want I'm really looking forward to because that is really going to then be able to be translated into policy and allow people to feel comfortable to come back to work, to come back and engage in society. And um, until we have that information, it's, it's all uncertainty and the uncertainty breeds anxiety within our population. So, um, you know, look at the, the clinical trials, but pay close attention to those other studies that are trying to define what it is that will keep us protected for the long term from this coronavirus from season to season. Doctor, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Yeah. I, I, first, I, I really appreciate uh, this opportunity to speak with you. Um, and it, it's always um, really a, a a wonderful opportunity to be able to um, speak about the work that we're doing and translate it in a way that um, you know uh, the the general public uh, can understand and, and give them some starting material to ask additional questions and, and ask sort of the, the the informed questions. But I also want to say that you know in terms of vaccines, we're going as fast as possible, but it's never fast enough. But even when we're going at this, quote, warp speed, we are never compromising safety. That is our number one concern. And the other thing that I'll say is that I hope that, I truly, truly hope, when I wake up every morning, I, I, I'm praying that this experience has taught us that we need to Start doing the work now 
to be prepared for the next one. It's not enough to, this will pass. This eventually will pass. And what comes after this? The spotlight will fade. But what lies in the shadows around that spotlight is what is most important. And if we don't remain vigilant on those shadows, if we don't do the work to prepare for the next, it could be a coronavirus, it could be a different virus, we have the tools and technology now to be able to anticipate and prepare for and have the vaccines and therapies in place for that next virus. We can do that now. It's just a matter of will. Um, it's a matter, you know, a matter of a sort of shift in, in paradigm of going from a response mode to a prevention mode. And I don't want the deaths that have occurred and will occur to be in vain if we don't learn the lessons from this particular pandemic. And that public will is something that's outside of the scientific community. That's on all of us to make sure that that happens. Such an incredibly important point and very sobering words. Dr. Kevin Majari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again.